Chapter 9, Dave Hunt's Heavenly Kingdom As we have seen, Hunt believes that the kingdom is predominantly a future reality. His view of the timing of the kingdom is very closely linked with his view of what the kingdom is. In other words, the when of the kingdom determines and is determined by the what of the kingdom. In this chapter, we will examine Hunt's understanding of the nature of the kingdom of God by looking closely at the passages that he quotes in defense of his position. As with the timing of the kingdom, how Lindsay is not to be classified with Hunt on this particular issue. Lindsay writes, God's millennial kingdom will be characterized by peace and equity and by universal spirituality and knowledge of the Lord. Even the animals and reptiles will lose their ferocity and no longer be carnivorous. All men will have plenty and be secure. There will be a chicken in every pot and no one will steal it. The great society which human rulers throughout the centuries have promised, but never produced, will at last be realized under Christ's rule. The meek and not the arrogant will inherit the earth. Isaiah 11. In this respect, Lindsay is much closer to the standard dispensationalist view of the kingdom than are Dave Hunt and others. Actually, Hunt's view of the kingdom is hard to come by. So, we have been forced to examine the statements of some of Hunt's allies and attempt to discern what Hunt might believe about the kingdom. Their views are no easier to obtain. An indication of our difficulty is found in the April 1987 issue of Peter Lalonde's Omega Letter. Under a subheading entitled, Our View of the Kingdom, we find the following. What is our view of the kingdom of God? Are we really to believe that God's kingdom is of this world? When he has said, My kingdom is not of this world? Is the kingdom of God just an eschatological point to be debated among prophetic scholars? It is not. As Alva J. McLean has written in his book, The Greatness of the Kingdom, In the biblical doctrine of the kingdom of God, we have the Christian philosophy of history. No adequate system of biblical eschatology can possibly be construed apart from the history and meaning of the concept of the kingdom of God. Furthermore, it has been rightly noted that any failure to understand the kingdom as set forth in biblical revelation, with its rich variety and magnificence of design, may actually blur the vision of good men to other matters of high theological importance to Christian faith. You see, this is why a clear understanding of prophecy is so important. A wrong view of prophecy can lead to a misunderstanding of central elements of the Christian faith just as easily as a wrong view of central elements of the Christian faith can lead to a wrong view of prophecy. This is the entire section. Yet nowhere are we told exactly what is meant by the kingdom of God. All that we find is an emphasis on the importance of the kingdom, a point that is not disputed by any serious student of Scripture. The only substantive statement is that the kingdom is the key to a Christian philosophy of history. We would not dispute this either. In fact, we affirm very strongly that the kingdom and the people of God are at center stage in the history of the world. As we shall see, however, Hunt's kingdom has little to do with history. At any rate, because neither Hunt nor Lalonde has provided a detailed statement of the doctrine of the kingdom, we have had to gather snippets from various places in Hunt's writings. Not of this world. Hunt refers to John 18.36, My kingdom is not of this world, to establish that the kingdom is essentially, exclusively, a heavenly and inner reality. David Wilkerson quotes this passage and adds, That settles it for me, as it should for all believers who tremble at his word. We must, as Wilkerson says, take Christ's words with the utmost seriousness. The question is, what does Christ's statement mean? It settles what. 
does it mean that Christ's kingdom is like the invisible ether that scientists a century ago believed to pervade our outer space? Does it mean that Christ's kingdom has no effect on the course of history? Quoting the verse without explanation only creates confusion. It doesn't settle anything at all. Several important issues need to be discussed in order to arrive at a proper interpretation of John 18.36. Perhaps the most important question to answer is what the of Greek ek means. Essentially, it means out of, and it can have several shades of meaning. Separation, the direction from which something comes, source or origin, as well as a host of minor meanings. Many commentators agree that here ek has the same sense as source. Thus, Jesus' statement has to do with the source of the kingdom. In the last century, Charles John Elcott noted that, By not of this world, we are to understand that the nature and origin of his kingdom are not of this world, not that his kingdom will not extend in this world. In the world sense of king and kingdom, in the sense in which the Roman Empire claimed to rule the world, he had no kingdom. The French commentator Godet wrote, The expression ek tu cosmo of this world is not synonymous with in tu cosmo, in this world. For the kingdom of Jesus is certainly realized and developed here on earth, but it does not have its origin from earth, from the human will and earthly force. More recently, the Lutheran commentator R.C.H. Linsky has written, The origin of Jesus' kingdom explains its unique character. It is not of this world. All other kingdoms sprang out of ek, this world and had kings that corresponded to such an origin. B.F. Westcott agrees that Jesus meant that his kingdom does not derive its origin or its support from earthly forces. At the same time, Christ's kingdom is in the world even as his disciples are. Charles Ryrie's study Bible explains that Jesus meant that his kingdom is not of human origin. Robert Culver comments in Toward a Biblical View of Civil Government, The words of this world translate ek to cosmo tutu, that is, out of this world. Source rather than realm is the sense. The future consummation of the kingdom of Christ cannot rightly be said to be beyond history. No, indeed, it will occur in history and is history's goal. So Jesus very clearly is making no comment on either the nature of his kingdom or his realm, rather on the power and source of its establishment. Thus, when Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world, he meant that it does not spring from the world. As he added, his kingdom is from another place. This verse refers to the origin of the kingdom, not to its location in the universe. Jesus was not saying that his kingdom floats in the air without touching the world. He did not mean that he rules heaven, but has left earth to be ruled by Satan. Rather, he meant that his rule has its origin in heaven, not in earth. It doesn't mean that the kingdom is solely in heaven. Hunt also quotes several other passages from John's Gospel to prove that the kingdom is an otherworldly kingdom. If you were of, ek, the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of, ek, the world, but I chose you out of, ek, the world, the world hates you, John 15:19. I manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of ek the world, John 17.6. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, John 
They are not of Ek the world, even as I am not of Ek the world. John 17, 16. Again, we must be careful not to assume that we know what Jesus is talking about in these verses without studying the context. We must carefully examine what he says and seek to understand it in light of Scripture. Several observations are in order. First, we find nearly the same phrase, out of the world, in John 15:19 that we found in John 18:36. We have already seen that of, or out of, refers to the source of Christ's kingdom, not to its geographic position. When Jesus says the same thing about his disciples, they are not of the world, we are justified in suspecting that it means the same thing. Though the disciples are on earth, they do not derive their power and authority from earth. As for the other passages, to be chosen out of the world does not mean to be relieved of all responsibility in the world, or the like. The ek here quite obviously implies separation. It could mean separation from several things. It could mean simply that the disciples have been chosen out of the whole mass of humanity to be Christ's own people. Probably it means that the disciples have been separated from the world system that dominates the unbeliever. Particularly in the book of John, world, Greek, cosmos, often refers to a system and world order under the control of satanic forces. It refers to the world below in contrast to the world above. The word has ethical significance. It does not refer simply to the planet earth or to mankind. It refers to the kingdom of darkness. Thus to be chosen out of the world means to be separated by the sovereign choice of Christ from the world system that is headed for destruction. It means that the disciples have been liberated from bondage to Satan. Finally, the strongest point undergirding our interpretation is the parallel that Jesus draws between his relation to the world and the relation of his disciples to the world. Jesus says that the disciples are not of the world, just as he is not of the world. Now, in what sense was Jesus during his earthly ministry not of the world? What does it mean when we say that Jesus is not of this world? Does it mean that he didn't have any impact on history? Does it mean that he didn't have a physical body? No, Hunt would certainly not say these things. But if we apply what Hunt is saying about the kingdom to Jesus, we would have to conclude that Jesus never left heaven to take human flesh. If not of the world refers to a location, a geographic position, then these verses simply imply that Jesus was never really incarnate on earth. Jesus was not of the world in the sense that he did not derive his authority, his power, his standards of conduct from the world. In the same sense, Christians are not of the world. In the same sense, the kingdom of God is not of the world. Thus, in one sentence, Christians are to be separated from the world. We are not to live by its standards or seek its acclaim or seek power from below. In another sense, however, we are not to go out of the world, 1 Corinthians 5, 9-10. Instead, we are to transform it as we bring the redeeming message of the gospel to all nations, and as we obediently implement Christ's dominion over the earth. Just as Jesus came from heaven to earth, so also the kingdom flows from heaven to earth. As we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Both and, not either or. One of the most prevalent criticisms of Dominion theology is that its proponents stress man and his relationships on the earth. Hunt, for example, wants Christians to make a choice between heaven and earth. 
Now it is true that where the gospel is concerned, the choice is abundantly clear. Either Jesus or self, heaven or earth, forgiveness or judgment, good or evil, life or death. As far as we can tell, those who hold to a dominion theology agree wholeheartedly with Hunt's assertion that every solution to earth's problems which is not founded upon the lordship of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins we have in him is temporary at best and ultimately doomed to fail. Yet Hunt has obscured the argument by forcing the Christian into a false dilemma. While he has a token interest in the earth, the force of his arguments leads Christians to believe that any interest in the things of this world is mistaken. Now, when your focus turns from heaven to this earth, you have pretty much aligned yourself with the goals of the humanists, the New Agers, of various religions, and of course, as you mentioned, speaking to Peter Lalonde, each participant or each group participating feels their beliefs will eventually come out on top, and the Christians may, in the back of their minds, have the goal that, well, eventually we'll convert the world, but in the meantime, they are laying the foundation for the Antichrist one world religion. Dave Hunt and others want to give Christians one of only two options. Choose either heaven or earth. If you choose heaven, then you are an orthodox Christian. On the other hand, if you choose the earth, then you are being deceived by a new world view, more subtle and more seductive than anything the world has ever experienced. This is a false dichotomy. Hunt has committed the bifurcation fallacy. S. Morris Engel, in his classic work on informal fallacies, writes that this fallacy presents contraries as if they were contradictories. There is nothing contradictory in saying that both heaven and earth are domains where the Christian shows his faithfulness to his Lord. The Great Commission Hunt contends that the mission of the church involves only personal discipleship and salvation. The Great Commission, in the eyes of Hunt and many others, is fulfilled by preaching and tract passing and saving individual souls. The mission of the church is to prepare people for heaven. This is certainly part of the church's mission in the world, but it is not all that Jesus commanded his disciples to do. He commanded them to make disciples of all the nations, Matthew 28:19. It is important to observe several things about this commission. First, the task is not to save souls or to prepare people for heaven. The task is to make disciples. William Hendrickson writes, but just what is meant by make disciples? It is not exactly the same as make converts, though the latter is surely implied. The term make disciples places somewhat more stress on the fact that the mind as well as the heart and the will must be one for God. A disciple is one who is wholly committed and obedient to his master in thought, word, and deed. When by God's grace men confess Christ as Lord, they begin their discipleship, but discipleship is lifelong and life-wide. Part of Jesus' instructions to his disciples was to be salt and light in the world, Matthew 5:13-14, compare 5:1. Thus the commission of the church is not only to bring men to confess Christ with their mouths, but to teach men to observe the commandments of Christ in every area of life and to act in society to preserve righteousness. Second, the nations are to be discipled. Hunt claims that Jesus meant that individuals in the nations are to be discipled. He paraphrases Jesus' command by saying that Jesus called us to make disciples from all nations. Albert Dagger makes the same claim. 
To disciple all the nations, or make disciples of, out of, all the nations, does not mean that every nation as a whole is one day going to sit at the feet of the Reconstructionist gurus and learn the ways of truth. The Great Commission requires us to go into all the nations and disciple whosoever will be saved. Aside from the patently false implications that Reconstructionists claim to be the source of truth or recipients of special extra-biblical revelation, Dagger has read into Matthew 28:19 something that is not there. In the Greek, nations or peoples, Greek ethnos, is the object of the verb, make disciples. In other words, the target of our activity is not individuals from all nations, but precisely the nations themselves. Matthew 28:19 does not contain the word ek, out of. To insert the words out of into Jesus' commission is deceiving, particularly if the reader is not equipped to check Dagger's interpretation against the Greek. This reading of the commission also seriously distorts the scope of Jesus' words. It is possible, of course, that Dagger has made an honest mistake, or that he has simply not done his homework, but when a writer adds words to a text, it is hard to avoid the conclusion that he has done so deliberately. Perhaps Dagger has inserted these words to make this passage fit his own preconception of the Great Commission. Regardless of his intent or motivation, Dagger is attacking kingdom theology on the basis of a misreading of Scripture. Many years ago, Matthew Henry paraphrased the commission. The principal intention of this commission is to disciple all nations. Admit them, disciples. Do your utmost to make the nations Christian nations. Individuals are, of course, included in the commission, but the commission includes men in their social and political associations as well. Not only are men and women to be instructed in the commandments of Christ, but through the preaching of the gospel, nations are to be brought under the discipline of Christ's word. Thus, Hunt's and Dagger's view that the church fulfills its purpose by simply saving souls is a much narrower perspective than that of our Lord. Here is a clear example of the reduction of Christianity supported with questionable exegesis, biblical interpretation. Dagger also complains about Reconstructionist writer David Chilton's exegetical rule that literalism is secondary to consistent biblical imagery. Dagger notes that Chilton goes against his own rule when he interprets Matthew 28:19 literally as a command to disciple all nations. Dagger comments, if Chilton's reasoning is good for Matthew 28:19 through 20, it must be good for Matthew 24:9. Ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Therefore, everyone in every nation will hate all Christians, ergo, no one will ever be converted. It is not our intention to defend Chilton's method of interpretation here, but Dagger's argument clearly doesn't come close to answering Chilton's exegesis of Matthew 28, 19-20. Dagger's argument assumes that all always means the same thing. Obviously, it does not. How do we decide what all means in a particular passage? The only way to do so is to attempt to determine whether the context of the passage limits the word in any way. For example, suppose that someone told you that a church had a picnic and that everyone was there. Only a lunatic would infer that everyone meant every individual in the entire world. In this conversation, everyone would obviously mean everyone in the church or at least most of the church. The same is true in the Bible. In Matthew's Gospel in particular, when Herod heard from the wise men about the birth of Jesus, all Jerusalem was troubled. Matthew 2, 3. 
When John the Baptist began to preach, all Judea went out to hear him. Matthew 3, 5. The chief priests hesitated to answer Jesus' questions about John the Baptist because all the people held that John was a prophet. Matthew 21, 26. When Pilate asked what he should do with Jesus, all the people said, Let him be crucified. Matthew 27, 22. It is clear in all these passages that all does not have an absolutely comprehensive scope. Yet this is precisely the kind of argument that Dagger presents against Chilton. He argues that if Chilton claims that all nations has a comprehensive meaning in Matthew 28:19, he must claim that it has a comprehensive meaning in Matthew 24:9. But even a brief look at the context of the passages clearly shows that this is not the case. In the last chapter, we defended the interpretation that in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about a local judgment on the first century Jews. If this interpretation is correct, then Jesus' warnings were directed specifically to the disciples. Thus, the hatred of all nations in Matthew 24.9 is the hatred of all nations toward first century Christians. It does not refer to a general condition of the church throughout the centuries. The commission of Matthew 28.19-20, by contrast, has the most comprehensive scope. The fact that this passage closes Matthew's gospel surely indicates something of its importance and scope. It is also significant that all occurs three times in the space of three verses. Thus, the literary structure and position of this commission in Matthew suggests that the Great Commission is a comprehensive mandate for the disciples. Moreover, Jesus introduces the commission with the declaration that he possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28:18. It is clear from the rest of the New Testament that this all is absolutely universal. Christ is above all authority and power and dominion, Ephesians 1:19 through 23. And he has given a name exalted above every other name, Philippians 2:9. Moreover, Jesus instructs his disciples to teach the nations all that I commanded you, Matthew 28:20. Finally, Jesus promises to be with the disciples always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28:20. On the basis of this declaration of comprehensive authority, Jesus gives his disciples their commission. Thus, the gospel commission of the church is much broader than Hunt and Dagger teach. The mission of the church is nothing less than discipling all the nations of the earth. The mission is to bring the world under the dominion of Christ in the power of his spirit and through the ministries of teaching and baptizing. How big is the gospel? Other passages make it clear that the message of the gospel itself includes more than a message of individual preparation for heaven. In Acts 20:18 through 35, we find Paul's farewell message to the Ephesian elders. Paul repeatedly declares that he has fulfilled completely his apostolic mission in the Ephesian church. It is interesting to note the various ways that he describes that mission. He declared everything profitable, verse 20. He testified of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21. The mission he had received from Christ was to witness to the gospel of the grace of God, verse 24. Among the Ephesian Christians, he preached the kingdom, verse 25, and declared the whole purpose of God, verse 27. A careful reading of this passage will show that these phrases are parallel to one another and are closely interconnected. 
They are all different ways of describing what Paul had taught and preached among the Ephesians. For our purposes, it is important to note that preaching the gospel of grace is simply another way of declaring the whole purposes of God. Paul knew nothing of a narrow gospel. To preach the gospel was to preach the whole counsel of God. The gospel affects man in his totality. It speaks to every area of life. This does not mean that Paul was unable to make distinctions between central and peripheral elements of the gospel. The point is that, for Paul, all elements of the gospel were important, and the gospel was the whole counsel of God. Thus, practically, when an individual becomes a Christian, there is more that the Lord wants him to do. He is to live out the implications of his confession in his whole life. He is to live in obedience to the gospel, and he is to contribute to the church's mission of bringing others into the kingdom of Christ. R.J. Rushduni, who could be described as the father of modern-day Dominion theology, clearly spells this out in the Philosophy of the Christian School Curriculum. All too many pastors and teachers assume that the goal of their work is to save souls for Jesus Christ. This is not the goal. It is the starting point of their calling. The goal is to train up those under our authority in God's word so that they are well fitted and thoroughly equipped for all good work, to go forth and to exercise dominion in the name of the Lord and for his kingdom, Genesis 1, 26-28, Joshua 1, 1-9, Matthew 28, 18-20. We are not saved just to be saved, but to serve the Lord. We are not the focus of salvation. The Lord's calling and kingdom are. In an interview with Hunt, Peter Lalonde, publisher of the Omega Letter, took a narrow view of the gospel when he responded to a statement made by Dr. Gary North about David Wilkerson's brand of theology. Gary North wrote of David Wilkerson, He is clinging to a worn-out view of what the gospel is all about, a view which did not become widespread in American Protestant circles until the turn of this century. By shortening their view of the time Jesus supposedly has given to his people to accomplish their comprehensive assignment, fundamentalists after 1900 chose to focus their concerns on preaching and tract passing. These are necessary minimal activities, but they are only the beginning in God's program of comprehensive redemption. The Dominion Covenant requires men to subdue the earth to the glory of God, Genesis 1, 28, 9, 1-17. His people still must accomplish this task before he comes again to judge their success. They have been given sufficient time. They must redeem it. Lalonde says that North believes that preaching and tract passing is a worn-out belief. This is not at all what North writes. Hunt, Wilkerson, Lalonde, and others do not believe that the gospel is comprehensive, embracing the whole counsel of God. This is the view that is worn out. Heavenly Citizenship Hunt believes that only heaven is the kingdom. The Christian is a citizen of heaven, not of an earthly kingdom. This is not entirely true. There is no indication in Scripture that we can't be citizens of both heaven and an earthly nation. The Apostle Paul saw no contradiction in claiming his Roman citizenship, Acts 16, 37-39, 22:22 22-29, and maintaining that he was also a citizen of heaven, Philippians 3:20. The Apostle did not cry out, Persecute me all you want, I'm a citizen of heaven. Instead, he called on the privileges granted to him as a Roman citizen. 
In fact, he appealed not to heaven, but to Caesar, Acts 25.11. Of course, he was using the appeal to Caesar as a means to advance the gospel. The point is that Paul did not believe that his heavenly citizenship canceled his rights as a citizen of Rome. Paul was prepared to use his earthly citizenship to advance the gospel of the heavenly kingdom. Moreover, the church is spoken of as a citizenship. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Ephesians 2.19 We might say that membership in the church and heavenly citizenship are two aspects of the same thing. The Christian's heavenly citizenship places him in an ecclesiastical body where a law order should operate. Matthew 16:13 through 19, 18:15 through 20, 1 Corinthians 6:1 through 11. To be joined with Christ's body is to be a citizen of heaven. The point here though is that heavenly citizenship doesn't cancel out our earthly responsibilities in the church. The Christian's heavenly citizenship makes him an alien, stranger, and exile on earth, Hebrews 11:13, 1 Peter 2:11. But the Christian does not repudiate his earthly citizenship. Rather, this means that our earthly citizenships are not primary. Earthly citizenships are temporary and have meaning only within the context of the kingdom of God that encompasses all citizenships. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Matthew 6:33. But let's grant Hunt's major point, which is that our primary citizenship is in heaven. This statement is entirely biblical. In Philippians 3.20, Paul tells us, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This idea corresponds to Jesus informing Nicodemus that he must be born again, literally born from above. John 3.5, compare John 14.1-3. In effect, one must become a citizen of heaven to enjoy the benefits of heaven. As far as we can tell, in all the reading we've done and conversations we've had with Reconstructionists, heaven has not been abandoned for the earth. Heaven is the focal point, the reference point by which the Christian gets his bearing for living. He knows that even in death, Jesus is with him. In fact, Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, John 14.1-6. But the earth and Christ's cause in every area of life on the earth are also important. Paul made this abundantly clear when he wrote to the Philippian Christians, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21 We often forget what Paul said first, For me to live is Christ. Why? Living allowed him to serve the body of Christ. To remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Verse 24 Did Paul turn his focus from heaven because he showed an interest in the things of this life? Certainly not. Paul saw no either-or dichotomy. Heaven and earth are important. Heaven happens to be more important. This is why Paul describes it as gain. The Christian has an obligation to follow the law of God as it applies to all locales. God's law is the standard whereby all citizenships must operate. Our heavenly citizenship involves comprehensive law-keeping. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14.15. Jesus did not restrict the locale of law-keeping, therefore, we can conclude that the keeping of his commandments includes every citizenship without exception. When Scripture speaks about obeying the civil magistrate, Romans 13.1-7, 1 Peter 2.13-17, citizens must obey. When state laws conflict with the laws of heaven, the Christian's first obligation is to his heavenly citizenship, Acts 5.29. 
When the Christian lives on earth, he remains responsible to various governments, but he also looks for the day when his heavenly citizenship will be fully realized. All these things, Old Testament believers, died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Hebrews 11, 13, 16, compare 1 Peter 2, 11. Ultimately, the issue is, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? Does it mean that we abandon the earthly battles that surround us? Does it mean that we leave the earth to the devil? Does it mean we don't polish brass on the sinking ship? Does it mean that we don't have any dominion on earth? In fact, the Bible teaches that heavenly citizenship means precisely the opposite. We are citizens of heaven in order to exercise effective dominion on the earth. We find this particularly in Ephesians 1 and 2. In Ephesians 1, 20-23, we're told that Christ has been raised and exalted above all rule and authority and power and every name that is named. He is in the heavenlies to rule over all things. That is what it means for all things to be under his feet. Why was Christ raised to heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father? To exercise dominion. He is seated in the heavenly places as a king to exercise his authority over heaven and earth. This is a spectacular thought. But Paul says something equally spectacular in Ephesians 2, 6-7. After discussing the believer's resurrection from death, in sin, into life, in union with Christ, he adds that God has raised and seated us in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. We are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Paul does not use a future tense of the verb. He is not saying we will be raised to the heavenlies. He says we have been raised and we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now what do you suppose we're doing up in heaven with Christ? As Christ's people, we are doing what Christ is doing, ruling the earth. Compare Revelation 1, 6, 4, 4. In other words, Paul implies that we are citizens of heaven so that we can exercise dominion on earth. To be seated in the heavenlies means to be in a position of authority and privilege. Thus, heavenly citizenship is not a retreat from earthly dominion. Heaven is the source of dominion, the place from which we begin to exercise dominion. Before we can rule obediently as God's representatives on earth, we must have access to the blessings and privileges of heaven. It is precisely because of our citizenship is in heaven that we are able to rule the earth obediently and effectively. The first step of dominion is prayer, by which we offer petitions before the heavenly king. Individually and in the corporate worship of the church, we ask him to bless and prosper our labors. In Christ, our advocate, we have access to the ruler of all creation. We derive our earthly standards of conduct and judgment from heaven. We receive the power to live in obedience by feeding on the heavenly bread. We can take financial risks because we know that our treasures are secure in heaven. We can live joyfully and productively in less than ideal conditions because we know that a heavenly mansion awaits us. We can stand boldly against evil in our society, risking persecution and even martyrdom because our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Hunt's concern with heaven is entirely proper, but he has not understood heavenly citizenship. Hunt quotes Herbert Sloshberg as saying that, Only those who find their ultimate value in the next world are much good in this world. This is precisely our point. Those who are citizens of heaven are alone fit instruments for extending the kingdom in this world. P. 
peace and liberty. Hunt claims that the gospel has to do with peace of God, established between God and the individual sinner. Peace is established only through transformation of the human heart through Christ. He castigates those who say that the world is seemingly able to solve all its problems without embracing the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who says this? Who says that the world is able to solve any problem apart from embracing the gospel of Christ? Certainly Reconstructionists are not saying this. The whole point, reiterated again and again, is that evangelism is the starting point of social transformation. The whole point has been that the world can't solve any of its problems without embracing the true gospel of Christ. As far back as 1973, R.J. Rushdoony wrote that the only true order is found on biblical law. He added, but the key to remedying the modern situation is not revolution, nor any kind of resistance that works to subvert law and order. The New Testament abounds in warnings against disobedience and in summons to peace. The key is regeneration, being born again, propagation of the gospel, and the conversion of men and nations to God's law word. In a 1981 article, Rush Dooney again emphasized the centrality of evangelism and regeneration when he wrote that evangelism places men under the dominion of the Lord and then orders them to exercise dominion in and under him. Having been made a new creation, they are in faith and obedience to their Savior King to make of their sphere and the whole world a new creation. A book published by American Vision Press stresses that the basic form of government is self-government. A self-governed individual is one who has been born again, where the heart of stone has been removed and replaced with a heart of flesh. These quotations indicate two things. First, Reconstructionists teach that being born again is a prerequisite to exercising godly dominion. And of course, evangelism is a prerequisite to being born again. Second, they show that their idea of evangelism is much broader than that of many other evangelical Christians. The point is that we evangelize to increase and serve the kingdom of God, not merely to save men from hell. We agree with Hunt that the fundamental peace established by the gospel is peace with God. This is basic. It is the foundation of everything else. But peace in scripture is not confined to internal and spiritual peace. Biblical peace, which is extended as the kingdom spreads throughout the earth, is much fuller. It refers to a comprehensive prosperity, healthfulness, and harmony. This peace flows from heaven to earth. The peace established by Christ between the holy God and sinful men emanates into man's entire social life. The peace of Christ has produced and should produce peace among men. As men are reconciled to God, they should be reconciled to one another. Is it really plausible to think that Christ can reconcile the world to himself, 2 Corinthians 5:18-19, without reconciling the world to itself? Peace on earth, the angels sang at Christ's birth. This means that the coming of the Christ, who is our peace, is the coming to earth of the kingdom of peace prophesied in the law and the prophets. Hunt says that the gospel was not designed to liberate men from the corrupt Roman Empire, but far from worse bondage of sin and its eternal penalty. It is absolutely true that the gospel liberates men from sin. As a result of this liberation, however, men are progressively liberated from the oppressive institutions and systems that are the result of sin. The gospel was not designed to liberate men from the Roman Empire, but in fact it did liberate men from the Roman Empire. Hunt goes on, it is no less erroneous to imagine that one's Christian mission is to set up God's kingdom by taking over the world for Christ, when in fact we are to call disciples out of the world that is doomed by God's judgment to become citizens of heaven. 
But as we have already seen, we are citizens of heaven precisely so that we can rule for Christ, or more precisely so that we can share in Christ's own dominion, Ephesians 2.6. Even Hunt admits that men who are citizens of heaven are the most productive men on earth. Thus, we must distinguish between the primary and secondary effects of the gospel. Our entrance into the kingdom of Christ liberates us from sin. As more and more men are liberated from sin, and as we are progressively sanctified by the Spirit and the Word, political and social liberties follow. Utopia? Hunt implies that anyone who predicts and a historical victory of Christianity on earth is utopian. Utopia literally means nowhere. It describes perfectly earthly conditions. A utopian belief is one that will never come to pass in reality. Hunt points out again that the millennium itself will not even usher in a utopia. A perfect Edenic environment where all ecological, economical, sociological, and political problems are solved fails to perfect mankind, so much for the theories of psychology and sociology and utopian dreams. In fact, no one is talking about utopia. Utopian theories are always based on an environmentalist view of man. Change the environment and you'll change men, says the utopian. Hunt disagrees with this outlook, and so do we. Change must begin in the hearts of men. After that, Men must be disciplined by the word of God. As they grow and mature in God's grace, they will restore the environment around them. The environment does not change men. Redeemed men change the environment. In another place, Hunt writes, How could the church be expected to establish the kingdom by taking over the world when even God cannot accomplish that without violating man's freedom of choice? During his thousand-year reign, Christ will visibly rule the world to, in perfect righteousness from Jerusalem and will impose peace upon all nations. Satan will be locked up, robbed of the power to tempt. Justice will be meted out swiftly. This is an interesting statement in several ways. First, we do not believe that the church establishes the kingdom. The kingdom has already been established. The New Testament clearly teaches that Christ established the kingdom in his life, death, and resurrection. In one sense, both Christians and non-Christians alike are now living in God's kingdom. Christians as sons and daughters of the king, non-Christians as rebels. Critics of dominion theology have chosen to believe that efforts to bring about long-term reconstruction in society are foolhardy and even satanic. They opt to live in Satan's kingdom, when the Bible clearly states that the kingdom of God has come upon us. Second, where in the Bible does it say that God's actions are dependent on man's will? Is Hunt saying that God can't act unless man acts first? This is the essence of New Age humanism. The basis of the human potential movement is that man makes his own godlike decisions. Again, we find that Hunt's doctrine of God affects his perspective on the future. Third, how is it that God can impose peace upon all nations during the millennium, yet he cannot do it before? What if some men do not want peace during the millennium? Will God violate man's freedom of choice to impose it upon them? In addition to criticizing dominion theology as utopian, many believe that this perspective undermines the suffering that is part of the Christian life. Peter Lalonde stated in a taped interview with Dave Hunt that everybody seems to want to join in the power of his resurrection, but nobody wants to get into the fellowship of his suffering. They are correct that suffering has not been an emphasis among Reconstructionists, and it may be that the necessity of suffering has been denied outright by some. Still, we should strive to maintain a balance among the various teachings of Scripture. As we have seen in dealing with the other statements, Lalonde forces us into an illegitimate either-or situation. 
The Bible picture is that we share both in Christ's sufferings, compare 2 Corinthians 12.10, and in the surpassing power of his resurrection, Ephesians 1.19-23. It is through suffering that the church shares in Christ's rule. Like Jacob, the church limps, but like Jacob, the church wrestles with God and man and prevails. Genesis 32.22-33. Conclusion Hunt believes that Christ's kingdom is otherworldly, spiritual, heavenly. In a certain sense, all of those things are true. The problem with his position is that he understands these terms in an unbiblical way and draws unbiblical conclusions from these truths. We have tried to show that many of the passages that he uses to support his position do not in fact do so. Thus, though Hunt's view of the kingdom has some biblical support, it is one-sided and therefore distorts what the scriptures teach about the kingdom of God.